Today's scripture is from the book of John, chapter 7, verses 32 through 52. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Do any, do any of you enjoy reading survival stories? Some of you? Just lift up your hand so I know. If you enjoy reading survival stories, it doesn't mess with you. Okay, yeah. I, I suppose some people could just compound your anxiety, but I enjoy reading survival stories. Um, they, they reveal both our finitude and how the human body is fearfully and wonderfully made. One of the things that comes up often in those stories is of thirsty people who find themselves uh, in a place where all they can think about is how to get a drink of water. Um, I wonder if you've ever been that thirsty where all you could think about is how to find a drink of water. It's, it's par for the course for you know, most classic survival stories. I, I once experienced a little taste of, of what those men and women on crazy expeditions have suffered uh, for months 
uh, toward the end of a long summer backpacking trip. So I'm not comparing myself to exploring heroes, but I completely ran out of water on this trip and it was hot and it was Virginia. And uh, I discovered some new things. Your mouth turns to cotton. That was new. Uh, your lips begin to crack. Your leg muscles stop cooperating. I don't, I don't think I was ever happier to round that bend in the trail and see through the trees, there's my car. <laughs> and with my car and the keys in my pocket comes the ability to go somewhere. I just want water. Whether or not you've experienced that, uh, the simple truth is, friend, your body will not survive. Your physical body, you can't live unless your thirst is quenched by water. And I raise that because it's a helpful illustration of something that is just as true in a spiritual sense. Because a physical thirst for water isn't the only kind of thirst that we experience in this life. I wonder if you've known what it is to thirst in your soul. Because there is such a thing as a thirst of soul. A sense in the depth of your heart of your, of your desperate need for peace with God. Of your need to be forgiven for what you've done. To, to be cleansed from the guilt and the shame of things you regret. Maybe you've roamed this world, gone all over the place, I'm aching for a satisfaction that has forever eluded your grasp. And, and even when you've succeeded or achieved goals that you had set before yourself and thought, you know what, when I, when I get that done, I, then I'll be happy. Then I'll find life. And you got there, and within even a matter of hours, you achieved that, but then it was like that success was just sand pouring through your fingers. And if you're honest, maybe you haven't even told anybody else this. You feel just as empty on the inside. Even though everybody around you thinks you're so successful. To, to thirst in that sense, comprehensive sense, to thirst for spiritual life in your soul is not a pleasant feeling. <laughs> but it is a good feeling, friends. It's a necessary feeling and exceedingly good on account of the action it can compel you to take. Okay, what do I mean by that? Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. Happy are those who know something by experience of spiritual thirst. That's odd. <laughs> Happy are those? The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. Until we know that we are lost, we are not in the way to be saved. The very first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. That sense of sin, which, which sometimes alarms a man and makes him think his own case desperate, is a good sign. Amen to that. It is, in fact, a symptom of spiritual life. Why? 
because of something Jesus said. Blessed indeed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So so is the gift of water is necessary to satisfy your physical thirst. Hear this, friend. In the same kind of way, and ultimately in an even greater way, the gift of the Holy Spirit is necessary to satisfy your spiritual thirst. Your body can't live without the former, and your soul won't live without the latter. And and the invitation that Jesus extends, look at John 7, verse 37, if you have a Bible open. This, This invitation here extends across the quarter of time to every people and language and nation. And so it comes to you today. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's what that compels us to do, okay? And what we're gonna look at this morning. If your soul is thirsty, what do you need to do? You need to come to Jesus. If your soul's thirsty, you need to come to Jesus because only the son who grants the spirit can give you life, friend. If your soul's thirsty, what do you do? You come to Jesus, why? We were singing about that earlier. So I love that song, Jesus is strong and kind. If your soul's thirsty, what do you do? You come to Jesus because only the Son who grants the Spirit can give you life. But choosing to come to Jesus requires knowing why he's worth coming to in the first place. And thankfully, that is right where Jesus starts in verse 33. Point number one, Jesus asserts an identity only the Son of God can claim. Verses 32 to 36. So what's going on here? Well, in context, we were in this chapter last Sunday, the the tentative faith of some of the Jewish people listening to Jesus, that they tentatively expressed in verse 31, that made some of the religious authorities hmm, significantly angry. (laughs) Because groups like the Pharisees didn't want anybody worshiping Jesus as if he were the son of God. Why not? Because they were thoroughly convinced he was not the son of God. And so given that, when, when, when widespread whisperings of, of people starting to wonder, to think, to, to even believe in him, begin to surface, that proves the tipping point. And in verse 32, they send members of the temple police force to arrest Jesus. But what I want you to see here is the way Jesus responds to that, okay? Because he asserts his divine identity here in response to that threat in in a way that reveals his perfect knowledge and absolute control. Perfect knowledge, absolute control over not, not just the present situation, but every aspect of his life. Okay, past, present, and future. Look at verse 33. Jesus then said, 
I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Notice, those are not the words of one who is being blown about by the whims of men. (laughs) Do you notice that? What are those words? Friends, that is sovereignty speaking. Absolute sovereignty. Think about it. I will do this, and then I will do that. Then you will do this, and you will not be able to do that. Sovereignty speaking. Because unlike us, Jesus knew the exact measure of his days on earth. He he was fully aware of his impending crucifixion and resurrection. He knew he had come from heaven and would soon ascend to the Father's side in glory. None of that was hidden from him. Nothing he ever did or said was reactionary in that sense. And so here Jesus doesn't leave us. This is really important. Any room to, to categorize him or box him in as a good person or an inspiring teacher. Does it leave you any room to do that, friend? He identifies himself in no uncertain terms, very plainly, as the all-knowing, all-powerful son of God. Sovereignty speaking. And as you're confronted with that, as we're confronted with that, you, you can try to deny that. Just he's not God, he's just a man like Muhammad or whatever other religious figure these church people want me to believe in. You you can try to deny that, but listen, to pull that off, okay, you're going to have to deny everything Jesus vehemently asserted about himself, okay? You have to decide that you know Jesus better than Jesus knew himself. That's a big deal. I don't think we always realize that some of our, our doubts that he is, in fact, the Son of God reflect, could it be, a great deal of pride in our own heart that we actually know him better than he knew himself. In a historical sense, the, the announcement that he would soon be sought but not found proved completely true. Historically, okay? Because after his death and resurrection, in in Acts 1, Luke records Jesus' physical ascension back into heaven, leaving, just imagine this, his his bewildered disciples. Luke is very clear in the historical detail here, just staring dumbstruck up into the sky. Jesus' words in verse 34, where I am, you cannot come, prove true. And, friend, they remain true today. What do I mean by that? Well, there are realms of spiritual reality, spiritual existence that finite physical creatures like us cannot explore. Limits, as it were, that that we cannot overcome. The borders of heaven are not open to the living. Because until the hour of our death, we cannot go to where Jesus 
is. National Geographic cannot fund an exploratory trip to discover Jesus. NASA cannot build a rocket that can penetrate heaven. Why not? Well, because Jesus has ordained in the perfection of his will that in this age, his glory may only be seen. He may only be known and found to the eye of faith. He doesn't reveal himself to those who demand he pass muster in the courtroom of human reason or natural observation or scientific inquiry. <laughs> okay, to those, he continues to say, you will seek me and you will not find me. Jesus will only be sought and found by those who embrace an attitude of obedient trust and humble submission, friends. That's what's required. He's, he's not going to submit himself to your vetting process. He's God. He created you. We submit ourselves to him. And we know him by faith, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Listen, for whoever would draw near to God, know God, discover God, experience God, enjoy God, savor God, perceive the glory of God, delight in living for God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's faith. But in the Jews' eyes, Around Jesus, there, there were just really two realms of living human existence. Either you're among the Jews, with us, or you're among the Gentiles, out there. And if you're not in either place, then you're not alive. You're dead. And in that regard, they were like the fish that decides, because I've never lived in anything but water, there is no such thing as living on dry land. And they kept trying to, to fit Jesus <laughs> into the narrow confines of life in this physical world because it was all they had ever known. And in their eyes, Jesus was just another man like them. And he was a man like them, friends. There, there is no hope of salvation except for the glorious, eternal, immovable fact that he became a man like us. But he was not just a man. He was a God-man. He was the eternal son of God, incarnate in human flesh. He came from the Father. He, he, was, not, he was not of this world in a creaturely made sense. It, his I Announcement here that he would soon leave his followers in this world on account of his departure out of this world confronts us with the fact that his origin does not lie in this world. He is not a created one. He's your creator. And it's his identity as the God-man 
that he asserts again here, not for the first time, that establishes his authority, hear that, and primes our spiritually thirsty souls to then listen carefully to everything he has to say about how the thirst in our hearts can be quenched. Jesus never says, just trust me or just come to me. Just get on with it, all right? No, no. He asserts an identity only the Son of God can claim. Point one. And then, point two, Jesus offers a life only the Holy Spirit can provide. Let's think about this. That the historical context of John 7, this whole chapter, is the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles or Booze. Now, for those of you who are thinking, when are you going to get done with your history lesson and get on with application, Pastor? Stop it. (laughs) Because you need to understand this historical context in order to get the application, okay? We need this. So the the festival, I had to do some reading on this this week, so learn with me here. It was a week-long festival that the Lord instructed Israel to keep every fall, kind of like a harvest party, to give thanks for his salvation in the form of deliverance from slavery in Egypt in the past, and to give thanks for his salvation in the form of the provision of rain to water the earth in the present. And every day of the feast, the priest in Jerusalem, they, they would fill a jar with water at a pool, and then they would take that jar and march, process together, reciting Psalms 113 through 118. We read 113 earlier today. It's a little taste of that. And then the, the priest would pour out that jar of water at the base of the altar in the temple. It was an expression of worship and an acted prayer for provision from the creator and sustainer of life. And the water rite on the last day of the feast was especially important. It was on that day. Notice how John takes pains to identify the last day of the feast, the great day when Jesus stood up and cried out. Presumably in the, in the middle of the temple courts. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Except he didn't whisper like that. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He he gathered up all the symbolism of the entire feast and said in a single invitation, I am the answer to all of it. All of this points to me. I'm the divine provision. I'm the long-awaited fulfillment that this everything in this feast, including this water rite you have just seen on the last day, the great day, it's all been pointing to me. And now I'm here. Because Jesus knew, friend, God's people had a greater need than water from the rock in the wilderness or rain on their fields before harvest. Do you ever think about how Often our own understanding of our needs today is just so impoverished. We, we fixate on real needs, but, but, but they're not our greatest need. What's that? Well, the same thing the people back then needed. They needed the water of spiritual life. 
The water of forgiveness, the water of cleansing from sin, the water of of restored relationship with God, the water of God renewing everything that our rebellion against his authority has messed up and made wrong in this world. And that that water, that provision, that salvation, that renewal, that that was something the Lord promised centuries beforehand in Isaiah 12 verse 3 would happen to the people of God. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then the prophet urged his people to trust the Lord to provide. Isaiah 55 verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Stop running around everywhere else but me trying to find life. Don't be a fool. I'm the author of life. I'm the sustainer of your life. I'm the only one who can redeem your life. So come to me. And for Jews who knew their Bibles and had ears to hear, Jesus is announcing here the dawn of the Messianic age, friend. He's he's setting off the fireworks, singing the opening, opening anthem of the time when God himself would begin and promised to begin making all things new, satisfying the hearts of his thirsty and tired people with his redeeming power and glory. And Jesus says, listen, if you want in on this, here's what you have to do. You have to come to me and you have to drink. You gotta come to me and you need to drink. The invitation, look at verse 37. To come to Jesus and drink at the end of that verse. It's a vivid way, symbolic way, helpful way of describing the invitation to believe or to place our, our faith in Jesus or to lean the weight of our life on Jesus at the beginning of verse 38. And if you're willing to do that, if you cling to Jesus, friend, as the only one who can satisfy the deepest thirst in your soul, well, then what can you expect Look at verse 38. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds in verse 39, very hopefully, now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. What what Jesus is promising here friends, is absolutely stunning. It's it's audacious to the point of being scandalous. Think about this. He says, I'm not going to satisfy your thirst by, by handing you some cups of spiritual life at all the hard mile markers in the marathon of life. I'm a runner. I know what that's like. I'm grateful for them, deeply grateful. (laughs) If you've served at the Richmond Marathon stuff and handed me water and I didn't thank you, my apologies. Very grateful. 
But that's not Jesus' plan. Periodic cups of water at strategic moments. No. From eternity past, the Father has planned something far better, friends. So something God's people of old could, could scarcely have believed. And yet something the prophets throughout the Old Testament long foretold. What, what were they foretelling? What's Jesus announcing here? It's this. It's not the cups approach. It's the fountain approach. I'm not going to hand you a cup of living water. I'm going to put a fountain of living water in your soul. No cups, a fountain, a spring, a never-ending, superabundant, always full, never drying out spring of living water. It's a fire hydrant of spiritual life that's going to fill you to the top and then keep going so that it spills out and pours out and floods the hearts and lives of everybody around you. How's Jesus do that? That sounds cool. (laughs) Well, he does it the same way today that he promised he would back then, friend, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2, verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward, We're living in these days after Pentecost, Acts 2, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh from from the day of Pentecost onward. All, hear that, all who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith become temples of the living God through the indwelling presence of the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit. It's not just this kind of essence of God. Sometimes we think like that. We kind of give the Holy Spirit like God Jr. status. (laughs) No. He's just as much God as the Father is, friends. And as the Son is. He's not the, the spiritual essence or vibe or weirdness of the God. He is God. Will always be God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know, Christian, that your body, this is the scandalous part, that broken, tired body that, like mine, can't seem to sleep. Your body is a temple No. Yeah. A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You know, the the Israelites waiting to enter the promised land, they messed around in the wilderness because they wouldn't listen to God. They longed for the day God would bring them into his place, into the promised land. But, you know, little did they know that God had something far better in store. Because one day, through the outpouring of the Spirit, his plan was to 
make them God's place. Isaiah 58, 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. That's not a new image in scripture. Listen, from the rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, okay? All the way to the river flowing through the heavenly city in Revelation 22. The water of life, that image represents the dwelling place of the author of life. And the salvation and healing and joy that is only found in him. And so that means to to live with the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you is to have nothing short of a taste of heaven on earth. You're a temple of God. And it's not his six billionth vacation home (laughs) that he shows up on random weekends. He's always at home in his temple. All the benefits of salvation Jesus has won for you, Christian, are applied and brought to fruition in your life through the ceaseless activity of the indwelling spirit. It's the spirit who draws us. It's the spirit who convicts us. It's the spirit who cleanses us. It's the spirit who changes us. It's the spirit who empowers us. It's the spirit who unites us. Amen. Regardless of what we all think about wearing masks, the Spirit unites us. It's real. It's the Spirit who comforts us. It's the Spirit who, who equips us to take all the blessings we've received from God and use them to, to serve us others, such that through our love and our care and our giving and our kindness, what do people experience? Nothing less than the love and care and giving and kindness of God Himself flowing through you. The Holy Spirit mediates the presence of Jesus to us as his people such that we get to experience his nearness and enjoy his presence even as we're waiting to see him face to face. He's he's the best gift we could ever get from God, friends. The best gift, the Holy Spirit. Because through the Spirit, God has given you the gift of of himself. When was the last time, Christian, you paused in your stream of intercession and request and said, Father, Son, thank you that I already have the best thing you could ever give me. That's a way of changing our perspective on all our other requests and needs, I think. So if you're thirsty, friend, if the people around you are thirsty, do not try to create spiritual life for yourself or others. Don't do it. It's not going to work. Come to Jesus and drink. Trust the life-giving work of the Spirit he freely gives. Cry out to God to give you more of the Spirit. Remember Jesus' words. What does he say? If anyone thirsts, 
Anybody in here not part of the, anyone? (laughs) We all are. There's there's no requirement other than feeling the weight of your need for him. The, The thirst in your soul has been planted there by God in his great mercy to lead you, to compel you, to prompt you, to to awaken our blind, arrogant, I worship anything but God hearts that we need a Savior. And that his name is Jesus. So if you're in a situation where it feels like everyone around you is just like that thirsty thing at the dentist, just sucking the life out of you, and putting new life back into you. Remember, through the indwelling spirit, King Jesus has placed an unending fountain of spiritual life in you, friend. Unending. The infinite almighty God dwells in you and with you. And so at no point in this world, no matter how hard your way or dark your path or far off God feels, you are never spiritually impoverished. You are spiritually rich because you're a temple. Don't lose heart in doing good, not because you think you're sufficient, but because you know the spirit is. And having given that Invitation. John records the effect. And this is helpful because I don't think the effect has changed much. Point three, Jesus creates a division that exposes the hearts of men. Asserts his identity, extends you an invitation, and that very invitation cuts divides and exposes the hearts of men. That that free invitation of the gospel, what is it? Turn turn away from your sin and come to Jesus because only the son who sends the spirit can give you life. That free invitation is divisive by nature. Puts all men, every person in this room into one of two categories, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. At every time. When, when Jesus spoke during the Feast of Tabernacles, some people decided, oh, I'm, I'm getting this. He's, he's got to be the prophet like Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. Other people said, he must be the Christ, God's anointed Savior. A third group objected to the second group, correctly arguing from Micah 5 that the Messiah must be born in the city of David. In Bethlehem. And since Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee, he can't be the Christ. Well, either they were ignorant or willfully suppressing the truth here because he was born in Bethlehem. But bottom line, look at verse 43. Here's the main point. There was a division among the people over him. That hasn't changed. Friend, if if people had divergent responses to Jesus when he was physically standing in front of them and talking to them, should we expect anything different today? I mean, why do, why do you assume, parents, that if you just get the messaging right, all your children will follow Jesus? And that if they don't, you've obviously failed in some way. 
Or, or why do we assume if somebody isn't persuaded by the gospel that, that we must not be contextualizing it right? There, there must be some way we're not, we need, we need, we need a new book. We need new techniques. <laughs> we, we must not have presented it the right way. If the son of God himself wasn't believed <laughs> when he walked this earth, do you really think responses we get today are going to be any different? Does, does division or rejection of Jesus surprise you, friend? Does it make you think, oh, if we could just go back to the 50s or get all our people in the moral majority? Oh, then we could just get past all this division and rejection of Jesus stuff. Man, oh man, what's happening to our country? What's been happening to the world since Genesis 3? Don't be surprised by division or rejection. Do this. Rest in the sovereign power of God. Look at verse 44. Some of them wanted, oh, they wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. His disciples were too buff and strong. No, no. Because, because the officers sent to arrest Jesus found themselves arrested by the words of Jesus. And he's still in the business of doing that today with people that set out to reject him and reject you. The spirit is still in the business of making them stop on their tracks and find themselves arrested even on the war path of rejection. They realized Jesus was claiming things and saying things about himself that only God could say and, and doing it with the, the, the most natural authority in the world as if he really was who he said he was. And the Pharisees who sent them were incensed. <laughs> and, and their response, lest we rail on them, okay, to, to both the temple officers and one of their own number, Nicodemus, reveals something. It, it reveals what is arguably the perennial obstacle to genuine faith in Jesus. And that's simply this, intellectual pride. What, what's the biggest wall obstacle to Jesus today? It's intellectual pride. Always has been. The Pharisees looked to human wisdom, human reason, wielded by the educated elite as the final standard of credibility. Look at verse 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Bunch of damned commoners. Matthew's translation. And the, and the great irony of their words was just completely lost on them. Do you realize that? Because in reality, if they had really known the law, they were sure they did. 
But if they had actually really known it, they would have recognized that Jesus was the fulfillment and culmination of the law and that the entire Old Testament law had been pointing to him and waiting for him and directing our attention to him and they missed it. Proving that if anybody is accursed or condemned on account of their words, it's the Pharisees. And when Nicodemus tactfully challenged their self-confidence, urging his fellow religious leaders to practice biblical justice, they tapped out. They refused. They, they don't, notice, they don't even answer Nicodemus's actual objection in verse 51. They don't. They simply retort, are, are you from Galilee too? I mean, it's the old ad hominem thing again. On one level, it's a classic example. This is sobering, friends. We can see this in our own hearts. Classic example of the spiritually blinding effect of self-righteousness. Thank God we're wiser than all those uneducated Galileans from the backwoods of our country. You know, we know how those people vote. Classic example, the blindness of self-righteousness. And, and on another level, it's another classic example of just how far we're willing to go in denying what we know to be true in order to assert what we want to be true. Why do I say that? Because there was a rather famous prophet who came from Galilee. You know who it was? And they knew it. It was Jonah. But that fact, that known fact, did not support their argument. So it was conveniently ignored. We do the same thing, friend. Because as, as we have seen over and over again in John, the great obstacle to believing the Son of God, trusting and following Jesus, it's not a lack of evidence. It's the pride in our hearts. We just don't want to do it. The Pharisees were like that, confident in themselves. They looked down on other people accordingly. They weren't humble, they were proud, and, and their pride kept them from seeing Jesus for who he really was. They, they thought they were among the spiritually educated, but they were actually among the spiritually ignorant. And we do the same thing today, friends, when we style ourselves as the sophisticated seeker, always searching, but never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. You'll, you'll never know Jesus. Hear this again. You'll never know Jesus if you require him to first pass muster in the court of human wisdom. But, <laughs> praise God for this one, if you humbly come to Jesus and listen to him on his own terms, then when you knock, that door will be open to you, friend. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. So, if you are spiritually thirsty, praise be to God. Okay? Why? Because recognizing that is a gift. And if you're not, be honest. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your spiritual eyes 
to see the depth of your need for Jesus. Okay, pray, Lord, would you increase my thirst for you? Lord, would you satisfy me with the life that comes from your spirit? Those are two prayers, FYI, that Jesus never says no to. He always answers. He's, he's worthy of your trust, friend, because he's the son of God. And he's worthy of your trust because he's the son who sends the spirit. And even when responses to him in this life and in your world are divided, Jesus is still worthy of your trust because that divergence exposes not the uncertainty or, or unreliability of God, but the pride of men. Only the son who sends the spirit can give you life. So what are you waiting for right now? What are you waiting for? You need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus right now. And you need to keep on doing that till the day his sustaining spirit brings you home. Let's pray. You're good, Lord. That's an understatement. <laughs> Thank you that in our spiritual thirst, you bring us back to you and thank you that you in your infinite goodness are not just interested in bringing us to your place, but in making us your place. And I pray right now, Lord, as we sing in response and, and ask you to fill us with more of your spirit or to take up your home in us for the very first time, as we, even this morning, repent of our sins, turn to you, lean the weight of our life on you. We ask that you would make us a people that walk in step with the Spirit, that find our life in the Spirit, and who are deeply, daily thankful that we are never, ever, ever alone, abandoned, or isolated. Thanks for being with us. Amen.